Well, this morning we have the joy to continue our study uh, of the parables of Jesus. And specifically this morning, we will be looking at the parable of the persistent widow. So please turn with me to Luke chapter 18 in your Bibles. We will be reading verses 1 through 8. You can find that in your pew Bible on page 1042. Again, that is Luke chapter 18, and we will be reading verses 1 through 8. God's word says this, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. About 200 years ago in the early 1800s, there lived a man named George Mueller. And George Mueller was an evangelist from England who was perhaps best known for his work with orphanages. In fact, he uh, directed an orphanage for many years called Ashley Down Orphanage. And it's estimated that he cared for over 10,000 orphans during his time there. Now, that's one reason why George Mueller was well-known, but another reason why he was well-known, maybe a little less well-known for this, is that George Mueller, early on in his life, began to have a robust and persistent prayer life. Again, this happened on, uh, very early on in his life. He began practicing this prayer life. And one of the things that he was known for is that he had five friends early on who he loved and were dear friends to him, but did not know Jesus. And he prayed for those friends. Now, praying for friends who do not know Jesus doesn't necessarily make him unique. We all pray for people, maybe once, twice, maybe a dozen or so times. But what makes George Mueller unique was that he prayed for those five friends every single day of his life until they were either converted or until they came to know Jesus, either they're converted or until he passed away himself. George himself wrote this, quote, I prayed every day without a single intermission, whether sick or in health, on land or the sea, and whether the pressure of my engagements might be. Eighteen months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. I thanked God and prayed on for the others. Five years elapsed, and then the second was converted. I thanked God and I prayed on for the other three. Day by day, I continued to pray for them, and six years passed before the third was converted. I thanked God and went on praying for the other two. That's the end of the quote. Now, what George Mueller didn't know when he penned those words is that for 36 more years, he would go on to pray every single day that his two friends would come to know Jesus. Sad reality is, is that he died before that happened. 
But the beautiful thing is, is within a couple years of his death, both of those friends came to know and to trust Jesus as their savior. George Mueller was a picture of persistent prayer. As we look at our parable this morning, one thing you'll notice right off the bat is uh, Jesus tells us exactly what this parable is about. In verse 1, he says, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always pray and not lose heart. That they ought always to pray and not lose heart. At the center of this parable is a call from God to have faith that our prayers work that our prayers are important. We do serve a sovereign God who is in control of all things, but the mysterious part of it is God still wants us to pray. He still wants us to intervene. He wants us to never give up in those prayers. Now, to get the full picture of what this parable is talking about, we do need to understand some context, and we're just going to spend a brief moment on this because it's not uh, tremendously important, but I did want to mention it. But there is what is called an eschatological component to this parable, or at least many, many scholars believe so, eschatology being the study of the end times. What that means is that Jesus is directly connecting this parable with the end times and his second coming. And that connection we see comes from what he was talking about before this parable in Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. In that passage, and we're not going to go over it, but he does teach his disciples a lot about the mysterious events that will surround his second coming. And with that in mind, we can understand that verse 1 of chapter 18 does two important things. The first thing, as I said already, is that it establishes what the parable is about. And that's, of course, the most important thing that it does. Jesus is very explicit. This parable is about prayer and not losing hope. But it's also, in some senses, it acts as a resolution, or maybe we could say kind of an application of what to do with the knowledge that Jesus has just shared about his second coming to his disciples. In other words, since his disciples and us, if we've read Luke 17, know that the end times will come and know that Christ's second coming will come, what verse 1 does is it acts as an encouragement to not lose the faith and to keep praying. We recognize that this age will come to an end. That sin will come to an end. Death, pain, calamity, and yes, even taxes will come to an end. But God wants us to encourage us and say, do not lose the faith. Pray, pray, and pray. And so with that in mind, let's go ahead and get into the meat of the parable. Verse 2 begins the parable proper. In verse 2 it says, He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. So right off the bat, we're introduced to the first character in this parable, and that is the wicked judge. And it's very obvious right away that this is a wicked judge. We already know two things about this judge. First is that he does not fear God. We also know if he doesn't fear God, he is not a wise judge, but he doesn't fear God. He doesn't care about God's will in his life. He doesn't care to do what is right according to what God wants. He doesn't care what the scriptures have to say. The second thing we obviously know about this wicked judge is that he could care less about people. 
This judge is obviously a self-absorbed, selfish man who would make a terrible judge. This is the type of judge that you do not want to stand before. His judgments, if he decides to even make judgments, will be on, uh, about his own self-interest. If it doesn't serve his interests, he's not even going to make a judgment, as we see with the widow. Now, I do want to pause for a second. I do think it's important to recognize that um, it's, it's not that important that we spend a lot of time trying to dissect and figure out, well, who exactly is the judge and who exactly is the widow? They are not the main point of this parable. In essence, what the judge represents is wicked and selfish people. His main purpose in this parable and we'll, we'll really dive into this actually in just a few minutes. But his main purpose in this parable is to be a contrast between wicked and unrighteous people contrasted with our good and gracious God. Jesus goes on in verse 3. He says this. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. So we're introduced to the second character. Uh, character of this parable, and that is the widow. Now, Jesus using a widow as an example here, of course, is not a mistake. There is great purpose in that. What do we know about widows, especially in the first century? Well, what we do know is, in essence, they represented the helpless in our society. The widow was helpless for two main reasons. She was helpless to caused the judge to give her justice for two main reasons. First is that she would have had no social standing and no connections to be able to influence this judge to actually make a righteous judgment or a judgment at all. The second thing is, is that she would have likely had no monetary means to be able to even bribe the judge into making judgments. And so, from our standpoint... It looks like she was helpless. And since we already know that the judge did not care about her plight, does not care about God, does not care about her in the slightest, there's no reason for us to believe that he would give her justice. But let's continue to read and see what happens. Verses 4 and 6 it says this, For a while he refused, but after he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man. Now, it's interesting how introspective he is. He recognizes, I don't care about God or man. Yet, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Even though the widow seems helpless to cause the judge to act justly, we see that she does end up having a couple tools at her disposal. Now, the first tool uh, doesn't move the judge at all. The first tool is that her cause is just. She says, give me justice against my enemy. She doesn't come to him and say, give me vengeance. She, there, there seems to be something going on, and we're, we're not privy to what's actually going on. But there seems to be something going on, and she seems to be on the right side of it. And she actually wants the right means to, uh, to, to uh, enact justice in this situation. She's not looking for vengeance. She's looking that the law would actually be fulfilled and done. And so she seems to be on the righteous side of it. 
Now, of course, this doesn't move the judge at all. He's a wicked judge. Again, if it doesn't serve his self-interests, he's not going to act on it. Her second tool, however, uh, works well, and that is her persistence. She is a persistent widow. In verse 5, the judge finally gives in. And it's not because all of a sudden she came with a new argument that, that made logical sense for him to act. It's not because all of a sudden she was able to say the right things and it twang on his heartstrings. But it was essentially because he, she wore him down. She bugged him into giving her justice. Finally, he said, this actually serves my best interest to just get rid of her. And I can kind of imagine, and maybe imagine with me, his emotions getting so frayed by her persistence that he's checking every single corner on his way home, hoping he doesn't run into this woman. Finally, he says, I will just give you justice. Just stop coming to me. Stop bugging me. Verse 5, it tells us that he was afraid that she would beat him down. Literally translated from the Greek, that's, he was afraid that, he was gonna get, uh, that she was going to give him a black eye. Of course, we understand that metaphorically. That she was literally going to beat his emotions down, give it a black eye. Now, as we read this, some of you might be thinking, and, and admittedly, as I first began reading this, this question popped in my mind. You might be thinking, well, is Jesus here comparing the wicked judge with God? Oftentimes in parables, we do see stuff like that. And so is Jesus comparing the wicked judge to God? Well, on the surface, it does, it can sound like it. But of course, we recognize that that would make absolutely no sense. Of course, it would make no sense because God is not a wicked judge. God is a good and righteous judge. But it would also not make any sense because we as humans cannot cause God to do anything. We cannot badger him into finally giving us justice. We cannot beat him down. And so what's going on here? One of the commentaries I read put it this way, and I really liked it. It said this, this parable is of the how much more variety of parables. Let me say that one more time. This parable is of the how much more variety of parables. In other words, what is happening here is that Jesus is looking at the selfishness and the unrighteousness of man, specifically this wicked judge, and he's using that to contrast the goodness and the righteousness of God. We are supposed to draw the conclusion that if such a wicked and unrighteous judge is finally willing to give someone justice, how much better and how much more and how should we expect the good and righteous and loving God of the universe to give his people justice? We should conclude that God is far better and greater than even this, than, than a wicked judge willing to give justice. And that God will bring justice and answer our prayers in one way or another. Verses 7 and 8 make this point clear. Jesus says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith 
on earth. Now, there's a lot to, that we could spend time unpacking in these two verses, but at the core of what Jesus is communicating here is two things. He's communicating to us who God is and who we are to God. God is a good God. There's not a time in history, not a time in all of creation when God is not a good God. He is a good God who loves his children, his elect, and wants to lavish blessings upon them. And we are his children, those whom he has called into a relationship with himself, those who repent of their sins and give their lives over to Jesus. Now, the interesting thing is that Jesus didn't just say that God will give justice to his elect. But he said, and this can offer some confusion, he said that he would give justice to his elect speedily, quickly. Now, why can this be confusing? Well, if you're like me, there have been times where you have prayed. And you believe that it was God's will, and certainly it was God's will because he answered yes. And yet, in no world would you define it as speedily. Maybe it takes a decade and finally God said yes. Well, that doesn't seem speedily to me. When Jesus says that God will give justice to his elect speedily, we do need to understand that, of course, he's talking about God's timing. For God, a thousand years is a day, and a day is a thousand years. What that means is that when you pray for something, if it, even if it's clearly within God's will, it may not happen in the next couple of days. It may not happen in the next couple of years or even the next couple of decades. And it may not happen the way you expect it to happen or the way you're praying for it to happen. We've all prayed for those, for people to be healed. And sometimes God chooses to not heal. We go back to the story that I told at the beginning. It was God's will that George Mueller's friends were to be saved. We know that because history bears that out. But George Mueller prayed every single day that that would be a reality. And even though it was God's will, it did not fully come into completion until after he died. He was able to rejoice in eternity over it. But in this life, he continued to grieve and pray for those friends. Likely what Jesus means by speedily then is that when God does act, that his action will be without delay and it will be totally effective. Once God chose to open the hearts of George's friends, salvation came to them instantly and completely. When God acts, his actions are absolutely effective. They're not partially effective. They're absolutely effective. And they are perfectly timed. They are perfectly speedily. I know that's very bad, bad grammar. They are in perfect timing according to God's good and glorious will. And if we had our own way and we got things done and forced God to get them done according to our own timing, likely bad things would happen. And so God wants us to pray persistently. God wants us to trust with faith that he will answer our prayers. And so now, of course, comes that time in our service where we take the attention off of the parable and put it on ourselves. 
And we ask the question, well, what does this have to do with me? And I do hope and I do think that uh, the application of this is relatively straightforward. It's not hard to understand what persistent prayer is. And so as we wrap up, I do want to ask two questions. And these questions go hand in hand, and I want to I hope that as you leave here, these questions are, are some, some things that you'll ask yourselves today and over the next couple of weeks. The first question that I want to ask is, do we, do you and do I, do we trust that not only does God want us to pray, which scripture is very clear that he does, but that he wants to answer our prayers and lavish his blessings on us through prayer. Now again, we are called to pray according to his will, not our will. I should not expect uh, that God's gonna give me a Maserati just because I prayed for a Maserati. Maybe it's in God's will, I wouldn't mind that. But we are to pray according to God's will. Now this isn't what's explicitly taught in this parable, but of course as we look at the broader context of the Bible, this is very taught often very explicitly. God wants us to pray and he wants to bless us. And then the second question, and again, it goes hand in hand with the first. The question is, are our prayers persistent? Do we pray and pray and pray and pray and pray? In 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, Paul calls us to pray without ceasing. Now, what that doesn't mean is that every second of every day you need to be in prayer. That's impossible. I, we get distracted. We have to focus on other things. But what it does mean is that our prayers should be and must be a regular and daily feature of our lives. And within that feature, within that daily prayer to God, the question is, are we persistent in those prayers? It's easy to commit to a prayer and then pray maybe for even a couple weeks over the prayer, but it's also just as easy then to kind of forget about those prayers. We're not really sure if they've been answered. We maybe don't do much research about that. That's kind of the natural tendency, I think, of our prayer life. But God does call us to persistent prayers. My brothers and sisters in Christ, is prayer a regular feature of your life? And if so, is your faith strong enough that you don't just give up on your prayers when you don't see God moving? We pray for people each week in this congregation from this pulpit, many of whom have severe illnesses such as cancer. Do we go home from here and then continue to pray? Do we go home and struggle in prayer daily that they would be healed by our merciful healer? Do we pray on our knees before God daily that our family and our friends who do not know Jesus would come to know the great Savior? Do we strive and struggle to bring the hurts and the cares and the fears of this world to the great physician? Do we cry out for our president, for Joe Biden, 
for politicians on both sides of the aisle, no matter how disgusting you find some of this? Do we cry out before God and beg him that they would guide this country according to his good and glorious will because he is the sovereign ruler? Do we hurt and weep daily over those who are confused, who are in pain, who struggle with things like homosexuality, sexual dysphoria, with pornography, with abortion, those who struggle with drug and alcohol addictions, those who struggle with mental illness, brokenheartedness, homelessness. Do we present them to the all-powerful redeemer, transformer, and restorer of lives? Do we pray daily to God that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven? Do we go before God daily and praise him for his goodness in our lives? His goodness in our lives when he answers our prayers, but also says no to our prayers or when he answers them in a way that we didn't expect or want. Prayer is hard, and it takes time out of our schedule. It takes emotional time, physical energy, spiritual energy. And I certainly don't stand up here and pretend that I'm perfect at it. I don't even pretend that I'm great at it. There are days and weeks that are better, and other weeks that are not. But do we strive and desire to pray more and be persistent in that prayer? God calls us to have faith that prayer works. Even if on this side of eternity we do not see it come to completion. And do we continue to pray persistently? But again, that means that likely we will have to sacrifice things in our lives. And that's, I guess that's kind of the, the reality of anything that we do. Whenever you choose to do something, you're in reality choosing also not to do something. When you choose to pray, you may and will have to give up free time. You may have to give up time in front of the TV relaxing. Time playing sports that you wanted to play. Time with friends doing things that you enjoy. Time enjoying your hobbies and yes brothers and sisters even time working hard sometimes i fear that we use hard work as the reason to maybe push off some spiritual disciplines i'll get to them later it means that we must be vulnerable and risk hours and hours and hours of our lives praying for something that may never in this side of eternity come to completion. And I don't want us just to skip over that. George Mueller spent 56 years praying that two of his, well, five of his friends, but ultimately two of his friends would come to know Jesus, and he didn't see it happen in his lifetime. That's heartbreaking. Now, praise God, it did happen. But part of the sacrifice of prayer is that you may never see a yes, and it may not be the answer you wanted. When you fix a car from the ground up, you get the joy of seeing it start. And all of a sudden, it feels like all that blood, sweat, and tears was worth it. Prayer isn't necessarily like that. Although, once we get to heaven, it will be. And we see what God's will was and how he was moving, and we rejoice with the body of saints. 
Now, praise God if you do not struggle with consistent and persistent prayer. I rejoice with you. That is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I hope all of you are there. But if you do struggle with a consistent prayer life, what I don't want you to do is be inspired by a sermon like this and then go home and devote three hours a day to praying. Now, if you're able to do that, praise God. But what will likely happen is you will burn out quickly. But what I do encourage you to do is to devote five or ten minutes every day for the next couple of weeks to pray and be intentional about those prayers. And then as you continue in that consistent, let's see, add another five minutes and another five minutes. If you drive to work or if you're going to drive your kids to school this Wednesday, don't turn on your radio. Don't turn on even that Christian podcast. Pray. Pray with your kids. Pray in the quiet of your tractor cab. Well, the, I'm sure it's not quiet, but inside your tractor cab. Pray as you run errands. Take that time that we do have, just naturally built in our schedules, and pray. And pray for desire. Sometimes we don't desire to pray, and the reality of our sinful nature is there will be times where we have to pray even when we don't desire it. But pray for desire. Pray that God would grow your love and your joy in that time with him. And pray the same prayers over and over again. The same boring, ordinary prayers. Pray every single day of your life. Pray, pray, pray. Ultimately, that can feel like a burden, and I hope it doesn't. But what you're doing when you do prayer, pray is actually resting. It's resting in the finish work of Christ Jesus, that he has justified us before God, and recognizing and putting our faith in a God who does want to bless us through those prayers. And when you miss weeks and you don't pray, don't slap yourself on the face, but just devote your ne next week to prayer. And remember that God is your good father who wants to hear your prayers and he wants to bless you through prayer. Let's go to him in prayer. Father God, we do thank you for this morning. And we do thank you that you have called each one of us into a relationship with you and each one of us to be here this morning to worship you, to enjoy you, and to grow as brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, as we go from here this morning, I do pray that we would be a people of prayer that you would inspire us to pray daily, persistently, that we wouldn't give up on prayers that we don't see answered. Father, I pray that every single day we would bring them to you. We do love you, Lord. We thank you. And we pray this in your precious name. Amen.